Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. So at a recent Gathering Gold Patreon meetup, the conversation turned to a topic that's I'm really fascinated by, that I've been thinking about for a long time. Someone was talking about the archetypes for lack of a better word, of the good girl, but also the inner teenager. Mm. We hear a lot about, you know, inner child work, and we talk about our loving adult, but we don't as often hear talk about the inner teenager, even though externally, I feel like our culture is very obsessed with teenagers and that period of life. Our Mm. media is really obsessed with teenagers for various reasons. I'm sure it's also partially because teenagers are this very important demographic and market (laughs) for Mm -hmm. people to sell things to. (laughs) But we don't always talk all that much about integrating the inner teenager Mm -hmm. uh, alongside the inner child and the the inner adult. And so the, the combination of the good girl type which we all might identify with in different ways, whether we really did embody that, at least externally, mm-hmm. or we had a really hard time embodying. We, we rejected it or we tried, but we just couldn't embody the good girl. Mm. I think no matter what, it it's really hard to escape the tyranny of the good girl <laughs> in our society and culture. Yes. And then when you pair that with this fascination with teenagers and this really important developmental time in our lives of being teenagers, it's just such a fascinating combination to me, the Mm. chemical reaction when you put all of that together. Mm -hmm. So we're going to spend some time today talking about the good girl type and our relationships to the good girl and also the teenager and the inner teenager. Mm. Does that sound good, Cheryl? Fascinating. And I love I love your fascination and I loved the notes that you sent me. So I'm excited. 
to explore this with you. Well, I would love to hear what the good girl type means to you Mm. and how much power that good girl type had over you both in childhood, but then as you got older and moved into your teenage and young adult and adult years. Mm -hmm. I know that for myself, I was very much externally the embodiment of the good girl. I was, from the time I was a little child, I was quiet and obedient and sweet. And I was also small. And I think some of it, some of it felt authentic to me in the sense that I was caring and I and I was a little more shy and introverted and I definitely felt a, a desire to be obedient and to please people. Mm. I also think some of it was really projected onto me. Like people were like, even other girls my own age, they'd be like, you're so tiny and cute and sweet. And, and so for me, knowing like my full humanity, knowing I just cheated on that math test or I just gossiped about that girl. I always felt kind of duplicitous. Like mm. I can remember being a little kid in elementary school. So between the ages of five and 10 and feeling like I'm a fraud. And if people knew, if people really knew what I'm capable of or mm. some of the thoughts I have or some of the things I've done, it's all over for me. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. In this framing of it and the way you're describing it, good girl actually means perfect girl. Yeah. Good girl means perfectly pure. Mm. Good girl can't coexist beside a girl who would cheat on a math test Mm -hmm. or lie about something or say something mean or gossip, right? Good girl is only the, like the totality of perfection and purity. Mm-hmm. Right. Beth in which, Little Women. <laughs> which we did an episode on, perfection yes. and purity, right? So yeah. good girl is the embodiment of perfection and purity. I am here to please. I am here not to make waves. I am here not to make trouble. And especially at home, I'm I'm here to um, not make any waves, not give anyone any extra stress. Mm-hmm. Um, at school, I'm I'm the perfect student. I'm the student that every teacher wants in class. Um, so I think for me, I was certainly that at school. I, as I've said in many other episodes, I was I. I strived to be the perfect student, um, the teacher's pet, the one that, and even at summer camp, like the camp counselor, the favorite, I wanted every award and I wanted all the stars and I, but good girl, I think in the way we're describing it also, like you're saying, has that element of pleaser. Yeah. And I don't know that I would have described myself as a pleaser, actually. As, as a girl. And I certainly wanted to please my teachers. It was more about perfection than pleasing, yeah. um, which is a little bit different. And at home, there was another character that came through me when I was eight years old that 
got very irritated with people. (laughs) (laughs) In particular, the mother person in my house. Mm -hmm. Um, And someone also, my brother, who I was closest to, my mother and my middle brother. And I would get irritable. And my mother did not like that. But no matter how hard I tried, I always had some part of me that was not a pleaser. And in fact, one of the funniest memories (laughs) that one of my best friends, Jessica, and I have, because we met when we were 10, 9 or 10. Um, We didn't really become friends until we were 11. But we were both, as I've recently shared in the stories we tell ourselves, we were both pretty confident kids. And we were both ringleaders in our elementary school. It wasn't a clicky school, but just in in the context of that school, um, we were both leaders. And around that time, eight or nine, I got called into, and we both got called in separately, and then we laughed about it later. We got called into the teacher's office to be reprimanded about our body language because we were both rolling our eyes a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know what I was rolling my eyes about, you know? I, you know... I'm not big on astrology and astrological signs. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I'm a Scorpio and somehow that's always fit because the Scorpio has this tail that stings. And, but, you know, I think like what you're saying, Victoria, is we all have that. We all have the part that stings. We all have the part that rolls our eyes. We all have the part that gets irritated and acts out. There's no such thing as the perfect girl. That doesn't exist. But what I'm hearing you saying is that you felt like an imposter because everybody was mirroring you in this way, and yet you knew that you had these other characters inside of you that are totally human and everybody has them, but it wasn't being reflected back, and so you felt like you had to kind of hide that and maintain the persona of, no, no, I'm just the good girl. Whereas I don't remember working so hard to shove that other, you know, character back down. She was just going to come out. I mean, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So if I was rolling my eyes and making people feel bad, like I think I modified <laughs> my behavior after that. But I also, I, I just couldn't do a whole lot about it. It was like out of my hands. Yeah, it- it makes me think about um, at the meetup, someone said, you know, there were two of us who said we really identified with the good girl type and that we struggled with that. Like like I said, in the moment, I, I struggled with it because it didn't feel totally truthful, even though certain elements of it, I guess, came naturally to me. But certainly also, I struggled a lot coming into young adulthood because you can't be a good girl and a grown-up, a true adult at the same time. Mm. And so there's a there's a huge cost <laughs> to being a really, really good girl, I think. Mm. Mm. But someone else in the meetup said, you know, I couldn't be the good girl, kind of like what you're saying. She said, mm-hmm. I was always being compared 
to, you know, her mom would always compare her to her cousins who were quiet and sweet and they would sit and drink tea with her mom. And, you know, Mm. she was talkative and, you know, she was dating boys and like a a little bit older, but, Mm. you know, just maybe talking back and things like that. And it reminded me, I I just saw recently a play adaptation of The Diary of Anne Frank. Mm. And all throughout that play, I mean, Anne Frank was like 13 to 15 in that time period that the play shows where she's in hiding with her family. And she is so full of life and she is such a teenager in the Mm. sense that she feels so intensely, mm-hmm. you know, her mood is kind of like, it's like living in a place where the weather is very unpredictable. <laughs> like a lot of teenagers just feeling intensely, changing yes. quickly. And and she writes in her diary about, you know, sexual desire and mm. she's opinionated and she's loud and she gets into arguments with people. And her mom is like, why can't you be like your sister? You mm-hmm. know, her sister was very quiet and studious and obedient. And it's this big tension that carries throughout and that she feels so strongly. And it's it's so hurtful to her that her mom can't accept mm-hmm. her for mm-hmm. who she is and is comparing her to this, this good girl. So oh, I, that's why I just think whether we were – slash are able to embody the good girl or not, it's so much pressure because if you do, I think we get stunted in certain ways or we feel stunted or cheated or something at some point or or we just – we really have to fight to find our voice and to yes. use it to find our – like I remember – getting into my early 20s and feeling so indignant that girls aren't taught about integrity Mm. when we're growing up. We're told to be good girls a lot Mm. of the time, but that really just means like you're saying, pleasing people, not having a voice, not having a voice. It's not really about your own sense of what is good or right, your own integrity, like that would be valuable, (laughs) you know? Yes. And I remember feeling so indignant when I was like in my early 20s and just rumbling with all this stuff that, you know, as I was becoming an adult and being like, man, no one talks to girls about like, what are your values? What are you here for? You know, what's your, what makes you feel like you're in your own integrity and your sense Mm of alignment with your values? I'm not sure they talk to boys either about yeah, that's, that. Yeah, <laughs> that's <right>? probably true. <laughs> so for any men listening, because I, you know, we do have men in our audience and in my yeah. work, of course, who also very much struggled with the good boy um, yeah. archetype. And I'm just, I'm here to please. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve my role in the family structures and configurations. It's really all about externals. And what does that lead to? Yeah, a complete rupture in self-trust, right? How do you trust yourself if it's all about trying to please and being externalized, your self, your trust externalized? And, and then when it 
comes time to really launch out into the world, it's hard to know who you are because you haven't spent all those formative years discovering my voice, my going back to the sexual sovereignty episode, my yeses and my noes. And when I bring in my relationship with my mother, um, I certainly wanted to please her. And there was countless ways that I ignored my own voice where my brothers didn't. So as much as we want to acknowledge that there is a good boy archetype, I would say that I think we can fairly say that boys in general are encouraged to have a voice more than girls. Um, you know, there were a lot of situations in our family home where there was a very clear expectation or hope of what we would do. And my brothers seemed to have a lot more freedom inside to say, no, I'm not doing that. And I was very hooked into my mother's approval. And so I couldn't, I couldn't say no. I would do things, even though my body, right, if I was connected to my body's yes and no, there was definitely a no, but I would override to please and to not risk um, the disapproval. So, right, it comes down so much to the fear of disappointment, the fear of disapproval. I don't want anyone to disapprove of me. I can't tolerate someone being disappointed in me. So I'm just going to keep saying yes and yes and yes and yes, even when inside of me I'm saying no. Yeah, and that sense of over-responsibility, the -hmm. sense that it's up to you to keep people happy, to Mm -hmm. keep harmony. Mm -hmm. I think about purity culture in the 90s and early 2000s and like, the message that many Christian girls were given in youth groups was like, it is up to you. Like, of course, boys are going to want to have sex with you. Mm. It is up to you to keep everyone in line morally, not just Mm -hmm. yourself, but them too. Right. You know? And so there's like a deep sense of responsibility tied to the good girl, I think. Like, it's up to you to to keep things in order. (laughs) You know, it's a. I feel like the patriarchy wants good yes. girls because they need them to yes. keep it all running the way the patriarchy is designed to run. Yes, absolutely, yes. So then, what happens when you become a teenager? So, and and here's the thing: I will say it's not like I was perfect. Like I was, I could be super loud and silly and goofy at home. My parents would definitely. It's not like I was perfect as a kid. Um, But definitely at school and at friends' houses as a kid, I was very, very good. And then I would say it's almost like, yeah, I think the conflict got harder the older I got because as a teenager, developmentally, what happens is like you want freedom, you want to individuate, you have all these really intense feelings that you want to process and express and you want to really focus on friendship and socializing. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard when you're trying to just be good. And um, I think especially in in the context of certain family situations, if you're expected, if being good means 
being present a lot, helping out a lot, you know, not rocking the boat a lot, not making mm-hmm. trouble. Well, teenagers kind of rock the boat a lot, you know, <laughs> that's kind yes, of how they're, they're supposed designed. to do. Yeah. So I just think for me, I mean, I definitely had, I had all sorts of teenage feelings and experiences, but I definitely also cut it off at a certain point. It was like, okay, you know, yeah, I might be a little surly. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. I might retreat a little bit, but I'm not like drinking or dating a lot or, you know, engaging Mm -hmm. in riskier behaviors that many teenagers are also really drawn to excitement and risk. Mm -hmm. I think I was terrified of getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. That's one part of it. Not just with family, but like I didn't want to get in trouble at school. I would never, like God forbid, oh my gosh, when teenagers get into encounters with the police, oh my gosh, no. Like I was terrified Mm -hmm. of getting in trouble and it seems like so many of the risks that teenagers take, risk can lead to getting in trouble. And I didn't want to get in trouble. I wanted to be good still. Yes. Yes. It occurs to me there's something about anger and rage that's mm. coming up for me. That <laughs> what happens when you squash yeah, I had a and lot of tamp anger. down on those natural impulses to rebel and to break mm-hmm. rules and to take risks and it it's energy and so where does it go that takes a lot of energy to keep the lid on and so no i think the topic of anger and rage comes up in various places in my work on my courses um especially for women that one for sure for women because we do definitely receive the message that anger and rage are not okay. They are not acceptable. We could say they might be the polar opposite of the good girl, right? Yeah. The good girl does not get angry, certainly does not have a a rage explosion, does not swear, does not thrash around, does not throw anything. But eventually, that comes out, right? Um, And so it might be in your 20s. It might be in your relationships. It might be, you know, when you feel safe enough. Not that it's it's healthy to rage at somebody, (laughs) um, but there is an energy there that I think is connected to the good girl. And like I was saying earlier when I was around eight, this... It was like the first intimations of anger started to come out in the form of irritation, right? And my mother did not like that. She did not like that at all. And I, I, I couldn't help it. It was like my Scorpio tail was coming out. And when I look back now, I'm like, right on, eight-year-old. You know, you were expressing something that needed to be expressed, You were saying no in the only way that you knew how to say no. What a wise part of you that came out. And so I think as I transitioned into adolescence, I already had that part in me. I was still very devoted to being an excellent student. And some of that I think is just innate. You know, I wasn't necessarily trying to please anybody at that point. It's just 
it's just the way some people are wired, right? Is I wanted to excel. But I definitely took risks as a teenager and put myself in very questionable situations. Um, I wasn't into drugs and alcohol. I, I tried a couple times. I just didn't like it. It wasn't my thing. And I'm grateful that I knew myself well enough to steer clear because, you know, that wasn't coming from trying to be good. I, I tried, didn't like it, didn't like the party scene. I just thought it was totally boring and stupid. Um, and I've just never been a fan of alcohol ever. So that was just my choice. But I, I found other ways to act out. And my parents at that point were gone. Um, and so I wasn't even rebelling against them. I don't think they even knew where I was 98% of the time. But I was, I was certainly seeking something and I was certainly living out something. And again, I have a lot of compassion for my 15, 16, 17 year old self that was trying to rebel, but also get something in the wrong places, mostly from men that, um, I didn't know how, how else to get. And so it came out there and, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how it's like when I hear you, Victoria, and you have regret around those years and I just think, yeah, but was any of that, did any of that actually serve me to, that was such a wounded expression coming Mm. out in me. And I was very lucky that I'm alive, like the situations that I put myself in. Um, and that's something horrible. I mean, some bad things did happen, but I'm here and I'm okay. And I learned and I recovered. And so I think it's just a, it's a tricky line between mm-hmm. how do you take risks in healthy enough ways? You know, like I look at someone like Everest and he's taken risks through flying. So yeah. it's definitely a, a real risk. Um, he hasn't been into the party scene either, not into drugs and alcohol. It's just not his thing. So he's found a way to be a teenager. And I will say he has definitely in more recent years put up very clear boundaries around us and has a voice, has a very loud, clear voice that says, I will let you in, but I will not let you in past a certain point. You know, for example, he used to let me track him on his phone. And one day he was like, no more. I don't want to be tracked. (laughs) So that's kind of how my teenage years went. You know, I was still pretty good on the scale of things, but I wasn't trying to be good. It's just how it played out. I think that's the difference. And I, I, I think I've been processing and I don't feel as much regret anymore, like slowly over time. And I think part of that is about integrating, like you're saying, like what is the desire really for? Is it Mm -hmm. for these like wild and crazy experiences or is the desire really for accepting all those feelings and feeling free enough to go to that party and check it out, try a little bit of alcohol like you did and be like, oh, this isn't for me. I think just the fact that you felt free enough Mm -hmm. to 
try things a little bit from maybe more of a neutral place. Like, let's see what I like. Mm -hmm. As opposed to going into a lot of situations like, I'm not allowed to like this. I'm not allowed to like this. I can't. That Bad, 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 you know? Mm. Mm. So I think it's the more that I am able to now in the present find my voice, use my voice, find my own boundaries, like, and also just generally internally accept my parts, accept my different feelings. Mm-hmm accept the contradictions, accept whatever my inner experience is. I think the regret around not being so free in the past softens Mm. a little bit. And it's more like, well, the grass is always greener. You know, like there's a great comedy special that came out this year by Mae Martin. And I love it. And I love Mae Martin's work. And they talk about like puberty, being a teenager, how difficult those years can be. And they went the route of addiction. Like they got Mm. into, they started doing comedy at 13, like stand up at 13. And they were around all these older people. They started smoking and drinking and then doing like harder and harder drugs. And they talk about, you know, their regret is, oh, all these like Gen Z teenagers now want to like change the world and make things better for people. And they're like, you know, I was just slithering around like asking for acid. And (laughs) so they have this regret about about being so self-destructive and going so crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's such a common thing where you talk to people and they're either like, not all the time, but often – Someone will say about their teenage years, wow, I really like hurt myself and hurt a lot of people and I have a lot of regret. Or you hear someone say, wow, I really just, I was so good and I didn't, I Mm. didn't experiment enough, you know? So I don't know, over time, I just feel this sense of there's no perfect way to do it. Yes. And maybe on some level, I was protected from something. Maybe there was a genuine uh, wisdom in my resistance. Maybe I really didn't have what I would have needed to navigate some of those things. Mm. And Mm. so I feel more at peace. But like the more I integrate that inner teenager and go like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like you feel so deeply and you want to figure out like who you are as a person and you want to individuate, like all of that is good and normal. Mm. Um, I don't know, the more at peace I feel about it and the more than I can go past it. Because I think the other thing is getting stuck. Getting stuck in a teenage mindset happens to people, too. I wonder, like, Cheryl, when you think about archetypes and how you see them play out in people, can you see like the good girl and the teenager battling in people at times. Like I feel like there's a tension between those two characters. Mm. And like we can carry that tension into adulthood where we are like maybe still trying to be the good girl or fighting against it, maybe still wanting to be the teenager or resisting Mm -hmm. the teenager. Yes, I think – we could simmer it down to the good girl who 
can't say no and the inner teen who only says no. Mm. Mm-hmm. And kind of like a toddler because toddlers and teenagers are compared mm-hmm. to each other. Um, and getting in touch with those places inside of the yes and the no, there's, I think there's so much healing potential there for the teen and the, and the girl to have a conversation with each other, to be in relationship to each other, right? For the teen to be able to even mentor the mm. girl internally, to be able to say, you can say no, right? Mm. If the teen is the archetype of no, then the t- that's what the teen has to offer mm. is this is how you say no in whatever ways you say it. Mm. However that, whatever behavior, however that looks for you, that part of crossing over into adulthood, I would think requires some kind of reckoning between what can exist as polarities inside. And then if you didn't rebel as a teenager, if you didn't find your strong enough no, then that would be carried over into adulthood and would need its own kind of attention to be able to then harness back and tap back into the teen developmentally at the time when it was supposed to be saying no, right? At what point do we find our true voice? And again, bringing it back to to self-trust, that self-trust hinges on knowing your your yeses and nos and maybes and I don't knows, like it's not just yes and no, but having a clear enough sense of the direction that you want to move in in any given situation and um, how difficult it is to do that if you're still bringing into adulthood the good girl and and the good teen. Mm-hmm. There's something very wild about the teenager and Mm. there's a lot of desire in the teenager, which desire came up in our aliveness episode. Like I think teenagers, I don't know, we often picture them as like just being very alive, Mm -hmm. even though in reality, a lot of teenagers suffer with depression and anxiety and all of those things. But our, I think our mental image is like, just like, they're so alive, like, taking risks and being drawn to excitement and depth of feeling and new experience. Everything's new. And um, so I think there's just something about the wildness that like if you embodied the little, the good girl, the good girl is also like not very wild or desirous. And Mm -hmm. getting into relationship with our own wildness and desire Mm can be Mm. so scary. Like, I think it just really scares people who have been really attached to being good because Mm. it can feel out of control. Mm -hmm. Like, if I let out the beast, what does that mean? What does that look like? Who even am I? What will Mm -hmm. I find? Mm -hmm. That's always been very 
juicy for me. Like it's the reason that at this time of year, I always reread A Midsummer Night's Dream, like I talked about in our summer episode Mm -hmm. back in the day, because it's all about, they're probably teenagers, they're young, and they're all like in love and lust and they go into the forest and then the magic like messes everything up and they're all running around (laughs) like crazy and I don't know. There's just something about, I guess, the freedom, Mm. the freedom of Mm. the archetypal teenager and the constraint of the good girl and and Mm -hmm. reconciling all of that. Yes. Yes. The abandon to be in full abandon. Yeah. Running around wild in the forest. Mm -hmm. Having all these Just like lusting after (laughs) – But it's really after life, you know? It's just about like, ah, feeling so alive and full of magic. Feeling so alive, yes. Grabbing life, Mm -hmm. embodying it. I don't know how many teenagers actually are doing that, but I think that that's at least the archetype, Mm -hmm. the idea that we have, that we all have the potential of that lives inside of us. It seems connected to sexuality too because, of course, yeah, right. teenage years are when the hormones start revving up. And there is a wildness to that. Um, And that's certainly what I was experiencing in a very misguided, unhealthy, dangerous way. But that was like my whole existence other than school. Mm. Well, I definitely had a lot of other things going on, but it felt like my whole existence Mm -hmm. sometimes um, was boys and men. And so um, I think that is a big part of the teenage archetype and the teenage years and our sexuality and Mm. how do we tap into that wildness and how do we encourage young people to tap into that wildness in healthy ways. Mm. Um, And of course, it doesn't have to all be literally sexual. There's so many ways to channel that energy into creativity and into spirituality and into just life, like you're saying, the lust for life. I do think there is, again, a patriarchal element here that Mm. women are not girls, teens are not supposed to be that fully alive and embodied and sexual, Mm -hmm. right? That there is that message of, The boys can, like you're saying, and it's your job to show restraint, Mm -hmm. not only for you, but for that out-of-control stallion over there that just can't help himself. Mm -hmm. It's your job to put on the brakes and say no. This is where you're supposed to say no, right? Mm -hmm. Don't say no to your parents and don't Mm -hmm. say no to your teachers and don't say no to (laughs) any adult in your life. But this is where you're supposed to say no. Yeah. Is if you're a good teen, if you're still a good girl inside of a teen body, then this is where you say no. So that message is so damaging and so shaming. Um, Again, because of where I grew up and the subculture that I grew up in, in West LA and the conversations around sexuality, I didn't, I didn't carry that shame layer. Mm. So- I was wild and I didn't have any shame about it. I I would have probably benefited from having a little bit of shame. <laughs> well, I was cloaked 
in shame, cloak. wearing a heavy, thick a black nun. wool yeah. <laughs> cloak of shame. <laughs> yes. But I also had my my period in my early twenties of then acting out some of it mm. in a way that mm-hmm. felt kind of a little bit self destructive, like not. Yeah, a little bit self-destructive because it was a little, mm, mm. I don't know. I think, I know, I keep coming back to this piece about voice and how much praise children get when they are quiet and demure and obedient from such an early age. And I've noticed that and I've mentioned it in raising our boys who were not that way ever as babies and toddlers that We didn't get that praise of, oh, what a good baby. Oh, Mm. you can take him to a restaurant. Oh, you can go on the airplane. No. My kids were – they had a voice from the beginning, and it didn't fit into our culture's idea of what babies and children were supposed to be doing. And that was true always, um, Mm. where they were raised to have a voice. I think kids these days in general are raised more to have a voice, at least – people who find their way to me, the way that they talk about their parenting model. And it's, it is harder in some ways because you're not, we're not raising obedient children. Mm -hmm. We're raising children to have a voice. And so we don't get the short-term gain of like a kid who's afraid of us. So we can Mm -hmm. just give a stern look and they stop that, you know, bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really just uncomfortable for us as adults and inconvenient. So you know, again, I think about, I think about Everest, and I think about um, he's off right now. He's doing his thing, and he was so excited to go. So he's eighteen, so he's still a teenager, and every day he would just every morning bounding down the stairs. Mm. He's like, I love life. (laughs) That's amazing. It's amazing. He's like, I am so excited for my life. Mm. And I mean, that's a lot of variables and factors that in part of it's just his temperament. It's just, he's just, he's a poo bear. Like that's just, that's his Winnie the Pooh. He's a Pooh Bear and he's a Tigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of us are, you know, Eeyores and, and Piglets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I'm the Piglet, it's me. <laughs> so, you know, we can't take credit for temperament. It's just the way he came in. But – We've also, and I know this is true, again, of so many people that I come into contact with raising their children to have a voice. So it'll be really interesting to see because a lot of my clients, people in my courses have young children, to see how these kids who are being raised to have a voice do experience their teenage years. Mm. You know, what does that actually look like to have healthy rebellion if you're not, when you still have your voice? Right. right? And if you're not just, rebelling against your parents, you know, for being 
assholes for the first, <laughs> first 12 years of your life. And is it even rebellion or is it just individuation? Yes. That people are after. Yes. And, and maybe, you know, looking at the world and going like, oh, that's messed up. That's messed up. I want to resist, you know. Yes. I think that, that's part of the beauty of teenagers too, the, the ones who can go like, that's not right. That's uh, that's not just, you know. Yes. And they go march and, you know, they set up organizations at their school. And so maybe we always think teenagers have to rebel, but maybe it's more about individuating yes. and resisting injustice, like genuine injustice that yes. they see in the world. Yes. I think that's absolutely true. I don't think that teenagers are wired to rebel. I think they are wired to really step into their their deeper layers of their voice. Yeah. And that's where I feel like, you know, have I told the story? I've told this story. Yeah. I've told my story about writing a stern letter to the priest. That was like my my um one of my acts of rebellion, right? Mm -hmm. In my late 20s of yes. like going to mass for the first time in years and then being so disgusted by the priest's homily and just being like, okay, A, I'm not going back there and B, I'm going to tell him what I think about that. Yes. <laughs> and that is kind of some teenage energy, I think. Yes. Mixed with the adult, you know, like being able to do both. So I didn't go up and like give him the finger and like have no control over how I expressed it, right? Yes. I was able to like notice the good girl part that came up and was resisting. Mm. You know, no, you can't. You, you know, you have to listen to authority and <laughs> blah, mm. blah, blah. Mm. Um, but I think even like the good girl brings that empathy and care. Like I felt a lot of empathy for the groups of people he was talking about in his sermon in a way that I thought was so horrible. And then the teenage part that's like, you know, screw this, power to the people, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> let's get out of here. And yes. the adult that could be like, okay, let's do this in a way that is really going to serve us and mm. is um, using all of our faculties and reasoning, <laughs> you know. Yes. If you were to extract the best of your good girl and your inner teen, what qualities would those be? I mean, when I think of the good girl, I just think of deep caring, like just mm. deeply caring about other people mm. and that being twisted into this very constrained, <laughs> you know, um, boundaryless, self-sacrificing way of relating to the part mm -hmm. that's like, I care about people. You know, I really yes. do. I really love yes. people. I really mm -hmm. want good for people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what gets exploited, maybe. Mm -hmm. So that's so I, what you would harness if you were yeah, to the deep bring care. that, the deep mm -hmm. care from your the child, mm -hmm. the girl, and from the teen, your teen self. I think from the teen – I just thought fire, like that's what just came mm. to me, fire, mm. fire of like, again, like your eyes maybe being open to injustices more or mm -hmm. the fire that you need to individuate, like 
I mean, teenagers have to navigate so much transition around like independence and and like learning to be more competent and independent. Mm. So I just think fire when mm. I think teenage. Mm. Beautiful. I love that. When I think of my of good girl Cheryl, little little good Cheryl. <laughs> um <laughs> In the best, what I what I would bring with me. I think also of my my deep, my the depth of my capacity to be in relationships. Mm. Um, how deeply loyal and fierce I mm. was and am about the people I love and the animals I love. I had profound relationships with. The animals in our house mm-hmm. too. My my dog Duchess. Um, I just I attached so deeply, and I still do. Um, whether it was you know our dog, our the woman who cared for me, Maria, my grandparents, my friends. I remember my my first best friend Elizabeth who I met when I was four and just like the bonding, right? My capacity to bond. But I would also bring, I'm also going to reframe what we call good because I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that that part of me that bristled and got prickly and irritable, I'm gonna call that good. I'm gonna say that's... <laughs> That's that was my good girl. Mm. Um, I wasn't being good to whoever I was doing that to, but I was being good to myself. And I'm gonna I'm going to widen our framing and definition of the good girl for this conversation. And then, as a teen. Yeah, that that fiery sexual energy I I want to always have. Mm. You know, in my marriage and in my own being, that eros like mm-hmm. we've talked about just that 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 love of life mm. that was mischanneled at the time, but there was something there. Mm-hmm. That is so beautiful mm. and so alive. Also, how much I danced as mm. a teenager and how brave I was to try new forms of dance, to you know, try African dance and try Brazilian dance. And um, I want to always dance. I think mm. that, that that freedom of the teenage self, and I think the girl self too, to dance, is something that I always want with me Mm. until I'm 104. Mm -hmm. And we're still recording our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Because you'll be 74. No, 84. (laughs) I can do math. And what you named too about courage, I would add that. I think 
teenagers have to be really brave a lot of the time, you know, to like face a lot of hard stuff and to face a lot of first things. First things. Yes. And and like doing things on your own for the first time. And I think that courage is really important too. And I like to carry that with me too. Mm. Yes. All those firsts. Everything's new. And the breaking out of the home and the individuating. And, you know, I'm watching Asher be so brave Mm. in his exploration of the world and his individuating. And it is so brave because it's it's like everything's new for a child, but you're still held within the arms of the home. But teenage, it's like, yeah, you still live at home, but you are going out into the world more and more. Mm-hmm. And it does require so much courage, and teenagers have that. Mm-hmm. So maybe everyone listening mm. who's interested in this can just take some time to and know that, like, we can still. It's. I think it's not too late. You know, I just don't think it's too late with any of this. I think that's where a lot of the anxiety often Never. comes from, and regret is like. I didn't do it right. I messed it up or whatever. But we can still bring so much to the the little good girl or boy, the little child. We can still bring so much to them and we can still bring and receive so much from the teenager too. Yes. I always like to think of healing as nonlinear and yeah. not dependent on time and space. That we there is a way in which that good girl and inner teen – are still as alive today as they were back then. So yes, I second that. If this is resonating with you, to just spend some time thinking about journaling, reflecting on um, those parts of you, what kind of tenderness, attention, love they might they might be needing, and what strands and strains still live in you that might need some water and light. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Victoria. 